What was life like for women in New Zealand before the arrival of Europeans? The Maori are the main indigenous people of Aotearoa, or what we now call New Zealand, and the experience of Maori women was in many ways strikingly different. For example, it was often the woman who initiated courtship. There was quite a lot of sexual freedom. But on the other hand, women were still considered men's property, and seducing someone's wife was liable to get you eaten. So what was it like for Maori women? Here to tell us about it is Thomas of the podcast History of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Now, I am particularly excited about today's topic because I always envisioned this show as being truly worldwide in scope, covering every nook and cranny of the globe, but I've found it exceptionally difficult to research non-Western cultures. I mean, not only are there fewer resources available in general, but that's especially the case for the topic of sex and gender. And that is why I am thrilled to have someone specifically focused on the Maori give you the inside scoop on the life of women among the indigenous culture of New Zealand. That's what we're talking about in today's showcase episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. <laughs> History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Before we get started, just a quick note. Although vaccines are finally around the corner, the pandemic continues to rear its ugly head more than ever, particularly in the U.S. and Europe, and many still don't have access to the tests that they need, whether because their state doesn't offer it, they don't have health insurance, or testing centers are just plain full up. So if you are at risk and need a COVID-19 test but can't get one, they are available from our sponsor, Let's Get Checked. You can order an at-home test kit and keep it until you need it, and you can get 20% off by using our URL and promo code. Just go to trylgc.com slash btnewberg and enter the code HISTORY for 20% off of your purchase. That URL, once again, is trylgc.com slash btnewberg. Let's get checked. All right, so let's get to it. Here's Thomas on the traditional roles of women among the Maori of New Zealand. And by the way, Thomas does have a glossary of Maori terms on his website at historyaotearoa.com if you're curious. One concept that you will hear today which may be of particular note is tapu, which is sort of a pan-Polynesian concept meaning sacred or spiritual restriction. And it is the origin of our English word taboo, although our word taboo has drifted pretty far from that original meaning of sacredness. And with just that one note, I will turn it over to Thomas to tell us all about the women of Aotearoa. Kia ora, g'day and welcome! 
into the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 12. Ladies. Last time. We talked about how Māori viewed their own borders and ownership of land, and how that contrasted with European ideas, along with what houses were made of and the importance of the marae. This episode, we're going to change tack a little bit and talk about Māori women and their place in society, which is something that is often omitted in written histories. Women don't tend to have much power throughout history, and the people writing stuff down were often men who weren't usually interested in what women were up to, because in their mind, they weren't up to much. So being able to have some information about them is fairly rare, and anything we do find is some great nuggets of gold. We will return to the marae next time to talk about what you would be doing in one, specifically the most common ceremony at the beginning of a meeting, or hui, the porphyry. For those of you listening on the History of Sex podcast, which I'm re-recording this episode for, by the way, thank you very much for having me on, it was at this point in the episode that I had what you may call a trigger warning for those people who were listening with kids. Reason being, as you have probably guessed, this episode does contain a lot of talk about sex. But you guys are here listening from the History of Sex podcast, so I don't really need to put that trigger warning in here. So... You know, we're going to talk about the birds and the bees, penises and vaginas, and all that kind of stuff. So, if you didn't expect that already, I honestly don't know what you're doing here. (laughs) As mentioned, women throughout history don't tend to get talked about much. And generally, when they do get some airtime, it's mostly to lambast them for being too lustful or trying to kill their stepson. So we sometimes don't know much about specific women. But thankfully, we do know what Māori women were generally up to in the pre-European era. From a young age, both boys and girls were having their bodies manipulated to bring them closer to what was considered attractive, such as the nose being pinched and the knees being rubbed occasionally. Women would also have the first joint of their thumb bent outwards to aid in weaving and flax preparation later on in life. Both men and women would also be expected to have some sort of tāmoko, tattooing, before they would even be considered for marriage. We will talk more about it in a later episode, but women would generally only get their lips and chin tattooed, whereas men would get their entire face and most of their body done, although just some facial tattooing was required for a young bachelor to be thought of as attractive. These rules are not 100% the case, but generally speaking. Naturally, women wanted to marry a hard-working man who could provide for them, and there were sayings among female circles that reinforced this, such as, and I do apologise for the pronunciation, I'm not quite used to speaking full sentences in te reo, even after nearly two years of doing it, quote, Tāne rau kākahi ka moia, tāne e moe e roto e te whare, kurua te takataka. End quote. If a man is proficient in gathering shellfish, marry him. If he sleeps lazily in the house, reject him. Which I think is pretty fair enough. Men did have a corresponding proverb though, that went, quote, Wahine e te ringa ringa waiwai kama moia, wahine e te nutu kakama, atu, end quote. If a girl has nimble hands and feet, marry her. 
if she is only agile at talking, leave her alone. Now this may sound rather harsh, in fact both of them kind of do in a sense, but just remember women were weaving clothes and mats for warmth. A man's survival relied just as much on a woman making him warm clothes as a woman relied on a man to get food. Anyway, the general gist is that men wanted a woman that could weave and prepare food for them, as well as be proficient at hospitality and dancing. Although, this was more important for a rangatira, and women wanted a man who could provide the food for preparing so they wouldn't starve. How do you get to the point of marriage though? Well, we find that in areas like this, women had a lot more freedom. Women frequently initiated courtship, especially where the woman was of higher rank. She could do this in a couple of different ways, such as by simply announcing her choice in public, or by making more discreet gestures like squeezing his hand or pinching his knee. Not really sure how that last one is meant to be discreet though, it's not like you can just casually lean down and pinch someone's knee. I would have thought that would be rather obvious. In any case, that's what they apparently did to indicate attraction. What would they do with that attraction? Well, what anyone does when they meet an attractive person on Tinder. They get busy! In all seriousness, premarital sex was actually pretty common and well accepted for both sexes. Except for daughters of chiefs. Many early European explorers commented on the sexual freedom of young women, but a lot of the reports that we get are also from European sailors, who were often presented with women for their pleasure, which was usual and expected in Māori culture. In these same accounts though, sailors quickly begin to realise that the removal or absence of any women when receiving hospitality was an indication of an impending attack. Of course, sexual promiscuity in a hapu, which is, you know, kind of your main family as well as your uncles and cousins and that kind of stuff, was limited by a few things, such as whether the hapu was small, incest, and large differences in rank. The other thing to note from this is that even though Māori society was promiscuous, it didn't mean you could just go waving your John Thomas in the middle of the street. Exposure of the pubic region in particular was considered indecent. In fact, it was thought so indecent that there is even an account of a woman being attacked whilst naked, and instead of covering her head, she covers her genitals. In terms of marriage, not all sex was equal though. Sex outside of the house was just that, sex. But sex inside the house was more important and implied marriage. And if you wanted to marry a man who the hapu didn't approve of, well, just have someone catch you getting it on at his place. Although mutual attraction was something that was the foundation of a marriage, there was likely a bit of politics thrown in there too, with the heads of families having some influence over who a woman could marry, especially if she was the daughter of a chief or similar high rank. If she was unwilling to marry her chosen suitor, then she may be confined to a pātaka until she agreed, which was not an uncommon punishment. A pātaka, by the way, is essentially a raised storehouse, so imagine if she essentially was locked in the basement. Once the marriage was decided, there wasn't really a marriage ceremony as such, 
just the handing over of the bride from her male relatives to her new husband as his property. The event being called a pakuha. Given that a woman was seen as her husband's property, adultery was naturally a serious offence, often leading to war. It wasn't just as simple as catching them in the act though, you had to determine who was at fault. By that, I mean if they were found in the woman's whare, house, the man was considered the seducer and killed. But if they were in the man's whare, she was killed for seducing him. Makes you wonder if they had arguments over where they would have their next meeting, given one of them would be very clearly on the hook if they got caught. The interesting thing about this pretty severe punishment was that it was universally accepted as an appropriate punishment. And as such, utu, reciprocation, was not often pursued in response to the execution. In saying that, there were some instances of the husband or wife that had been crossed getting support from their hapu and attacking the hapu of the seducer, potentially eating them. It wasn't all revenge though. For example, there was one report where a chief forgave his wife for cheating on him with a slave who was meant to guard her, as she was the one who instigated the affair. Had it been the other way around, the slave would have been executed and eaten. If adultery wasn't discovered through catching them in the act, the other way was to find out through omens, such as undercooked fish, or catching a fish through the tail rather than its mouth. Although adultery was a serious crime, polygamy was also present, meaning men would commonly have more than one wife. We aren't totally sure if there was a limit to the amount of women a man could marry. Some say it was a max of four, whereas others say there wasn't a limit at all. Most rangatira are said to have anywhere between five to twelve wives, with most men having at least two if they had the means to do so. A man didn't just marry a bunch of women with no structure to it though. One of the women would be the first or principal wife called the wahine matua, and would have all the privileges and responsibilities that would come with that position. One such privilege is if the union bore children, they would get precedence over children born from the other wives when it came to rank and succession. The first wife would usually be of similar rank to her husband to preserve his mana, kind of prestige or gravitas, and because of the marriage was usually for political reasons, such as allying two hapu together. For a rangatira, having more than one wife conferred a lot of mana and prestige, and was a good way to show off your wealth by being able to indicate that you could feed and house everyone under one roof. This was further enhanced if one or more of his wives was a noble, and brought slaves, property, or alliances with her to her husband. What's interesting is that if a woman had rights to or owned any land, she would often continue to reside there with her chiefly husband travelling to spend time with each woman in turn. It wasn't all sunshine and roses though between the wives, and there was often tension between them. When women were asked if they would prefer monogamy, they fairly predictably said yes, they would prefer a monogamous marriage. What's kind of strange about this though, is that we hear of a chief who also said he would prefer to only have one wife, so he wouldn't have to deal with all the friction polygamy caused. This may have contributed to a common practice of sisters being married to the same man, perhaps to keep any issues in house, as it were. 
Polygamy also led to the obligation of a man to marry his brother's wife, or wives, when he died, so as not to leave them destitute. Despite what people thought though, the economic, labour and prestige incentives likely made it much more worth it. This can be seen in a proverb from the time, quote, Kamate fare tahi, ka ora fare rua, end quote. One house brings disaster, two houses, life. Where there is marriage, there is also divorce, and a woman could be divorced if she failed to produce children. In particular, male children, as they were the ones who would inherit, and bring the most mana to a fano or hapu. Fano meaning that core family unit of mum, dad, kids, grandma, that kind of thing. This was one of the areas where women got a bit shafted, because women were generally accepted as being the receptacle and bearer of a man's quote-unquote spirit, which came from the story of the god Tane Mahuta and his wife. Despite this view of the women basically just being the receptacle, they were held responsible for a lack of conception, hence the divorce, which in some instances was insisted on by the woman herself, often suggesting her husband marry her sister instead. As a quick side note, it seems that homosexuality for both males and females may have been not only common, but reasonably well accepted, which is present in other Pacific cultures as well. Women could also be offered up as part of peace negotiations after war. Usually it would be a high-ranking woman, or the chief's daughter, which would boost the mana of the victorious chief. Women captured in battle were usually referred to as concubines, but they were well treated, along with their children, despite their lower status. We've talked about the division of labour a little bit before, with men doing the more arduous and physical tasks, with women taking the more monotonous tasks. In saying that though, women did do some rather physical tasks, such as carrying logs for building houses, or paddling waka, canoes, when going to war. They wouldn't do this in the war canoes though, as they were highly decorated with carvings and for women to be in those was a big no-no. Instead, they would follow in their own canoes. What's funny about this is that it was also a woman's job to load waka for travel, and apparently more than one chief did have difficulty loading canoes due to a lack of women present. Like, come on fellas, harden up and do it yourself. Many jobs were even undertaken side by side, such as when planting, men would dig up the soil with women following along with the seeds, or men fishing as women collected shellfish. The only exception to that second one is Pawa, or as you might know it overseas, as abalone or abalone, I'm never really sure. Men dived for that as it was found a bit deeper. Even though there was this division of labour, some tasks were performed by both sexes, such as foraging for plants, preparing dyes, and we even see men weaving baskets and cloaks, with some high-value cloaks having been made by men rather than women. This didn't necessarily swing the other way though, given women's nor status, which is something that would take way too long to explain in this episode, so just know that it's a spiritual thing that is the opposite of tapu, which means that women can and cannot do certain things. So stuff like tāmoko and carving, both very tapu professions, were unavailable to them. In short, young women weren't just child carers and homemakers, 
they were expected to pull their weight in the community. As a woman got older, her responsibility would change to looking after the next generation. They would sing lullabies to children, which would detail their whakapapa, meaning ancestry or genealogy, mythology, and other tribal history. Matters on tapu were also taught at a young age, again told in the form of stories, people receiving punishment for stepping on tapu ground and such. As the child got older, independence and curiosity was regarded highly, with parents and grandparents sometimes not punishing their children as harshly, so as not to discourage bravery and audacity, mostly in males. Altruism with the tribe was also encouraged, with the education of children being the responsibility of the entire tribe, and children helping with chores when they were old enough. In the case of girls, they would have learned how to prepare a hangi, which is an underground oven, carry firewood, clear weeds, and prepare flax for weaving, by about 9 or 10 years old. Training in weaving itself also began around 10, but this was with much more ritual and tapu. Mothers also spoke rather freely about menstruation, as this involved a bit of tapu as well. For example, women could not prepare a hangi if menstruating, as the food would not cook properly, or they couldn't collect flax, or they couldn't weave. Another way of teaching cultural norms was through games, haka and poi, which is a form of Māori dance which involves spinning weights held by a rope. So, after all of that, I bet there are some of you jumping up and down wondering if women could become chiefs, given I have exclusively referred to rangatira as being males. Well, I do have to disappoint you a little, as although it was not unheard of for a woman of high rank to become a chief, it was fairly rare. Usually, if the firstborn was a girl, she would be afforded much more respect than if she was born further down the line, and as such, she would be referred to as the Ariki Tapairu, or just Tapairu, chief by association, with her oldest brother assuming the actual chieftainship. But, as we have discussed, women could rise to some prominence, such as the late Māori Queen, and depending on how you view things, pre-European Māori women did have a lot of freedoms that their European counterparts may have not. Thank you once again for the History of Sex podcast for having me on to talk about pre-European Māori women. If you liked what you heard here, uh, we have over 50 episodes talking almost exclusively about pre-European Māori. Subjects like uh, weaving, or tāmoko, which is tattooing, or whakairo, which is carving, or music, or repatriation of Māori remains from overseas. We've also got a bunch of dramatic retellings of Māori stories, um, so how the world began, um, as well as of course the classic ones from Maui and some other ones as well that you may not have heard of. So if you thought, this is bloody great, I want to hear some more about it, you can find me in all the usual places, but if you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaotearoa at gmail.com, or Twitter at historyaotearoa, or Facebook at historyaotearoa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. So come along, join us, hear about Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. Go well, and return in good health. See you next time. 
Thank you once again to Thomas for the inside scoop on all that. Be sure to check out his show, The History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast. There's a lot more fascinating stuff just waiting for you to discover. Folks, if you like what we're doing here on this show, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Or you can pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as an assertive Maori woman eyeing a hot knee and thinking, oh yeah, I'd pinch that. Or as a fierce warrior doing the haka dance, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash btnewberg. Okay, we've got more content coming down the pipe for you guys. Here is a preview of what we have on the docket coming up. I'm working on the curious and complicated history of oral sex. That should be fun. I'm also lining up an interview with an author who's going to tell us about the masculinity of black soldiers in the Civil War. And I'm also collaborating with another podcaster to produce a joint episode on how the Roaring Twenties stimulated a brand new attitude towards sex. So lots of good stuff in the works. Hit that subscribe button to make sure that you get it as soon as it drops. All right, we'll see you next time. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.